This Red Centre podcast is brought to you by Storm, a brand new red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. You are listening to Red Centre, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking and cutting edge imaging. Hi, welcome to this week's Red Centre, number 78, coming to you actually uh, from remote locations. Jason, how are you? I'm very well. I'm in my podcasting lair below my mansion. Yes, really? Yes. Uh, <laughs> in the uh, yes, I, sorry, I just had this image of a large uh, black vehicle turning on a uh, turntable behind you and getting ready for a uh, rapid exit, which is actually not too far off the mark because the reason we're recording this tonight is that uh, you're about to fly to New Zealand. Yes, and you're going a bit further than me. I'm going to Korea. <laughs> yes. So, so apologies. Um, we, well, we wanted to bring you the show. Uh, for a couple of reasons, there's a couple of interesting things that happened in the news area. Also, we have a really interesting interview, um, something we didn't expect to have. Uh, we're going to be doing um, some interviews coming up on the new Storm product uh, from the Foundry, and we thank them for being a new sponsor of uh, Red Center. But uh, one of the things we, we do, of course, is uh, over at FX Guide, we do stories on um, visual effects. And we started talking to uh, the visual effects team on Narnia, and as it happened, we got into an incredibly interesting discussion on the testing of the cameras used for the mono capture of Narnia, which then, of course, became uh, stereo through a uh, dimensionalization process. And we just thought that discussion was so interesting, and we would normally cut it because we would be focusing on the visual effects over at FX uh, Guide. So we thought we'd actually include that uh, yeah, today. So that's a special red room, um, which is unusual for us, I guess, Jason, because uh, we normally have red rooms that are... Um, well, it, we, I don't think we've ever sort of done a joint red room, as and we're like a, you know, um, one that's sort of split between, obviously, the, the vi- all the camera stuff is going to be in Red Centre, but we'll yeah. the visual effects stuff will be over on um, FX uh, Guide. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I, th- I think, you know, uh, it's inevitable that there'll be a bit of a shift also towards 3D just in what we cover as well, because that is the way the world is going every every time we turn around. And as we touch on later with the news... Uh, you know, 3D is uh, not um, is not it's not stopping any time now. No, no, absolutely not. And so it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing, I think, because um, I don't know. Just in in certain ways, the uh, 3D stuff is throwing into sharp relief some of the stuff that's going on um, with, of course, the other stuff that's happening uh, in the camera industry, and and never more so, I think, actually, than. Um, with the red camera. So with that, let's go over, because mm. I want to discuss this, um, uh, to the news desk. And now, the Red Center News. And so uh, what I was referring to there is, of course, that uh, not only is the Hobbit, uh, which we, well, I think I correct, incorrectly said, uh, was not being uh, lensed by Andrew Leslie, and in fact it is. Um, it is, yes. And I think I had a mildly anonymous Twitter person pop up and say, you're wrong, and then pop up and then disappear again. So I was corrected, and now going back to the IMDb listing, it now does show that uh, Andrew Lesney, um, Australian DP, who shot um, the Lord of the Rings um, and as many a, a ton of other stuff, is in is indeed shooting it, which is great to hear. Um, but uh, yeah, I will never again, mostly uh, trust IMDb no, I think for it was critical a- info. No, no, it was, I think it was a valid thing. I think most people would agree that checking with IMDb is um, is a reasonable thing. It wasn't an internet rumour or anything. Um, no, IMDb no. tends to be a fairly uh, up-to-date uh, production thing, especially on a major film like that, but we do apologise for getting that wrong. Um, no, the reason that, that I say that is because we discovered that another film is shooting 
with epics in stereo and in fact has sort of jumped the gun on uh, on the hobbit chase yeah, in fact, yes, exactly. In, in fact, uh, shooting right now, uh, Spider-Man 4. We're calling Sp- Spider-Man 4, but I think it's officially unnamed Spider-Man Project. I guess unnamed Spider-Man Reboot is what it is. Um, uh, yes, yeah, Spider-Man 4 has already started shooting uh, principal photography. John Schwartzman, who I'm incredibly uh, have a man crush on for his fantastic work on The Rock, Armageddon, just to name a, a couple of things, his things, um, is shooting, which is fantastic. Uh, I believe, uh, maybe you know, Mike, he shot... Um, with Red One on Night of the Museum, which I wasn't aware of. We covered that on VFX Show. I think I it was actually the second Night of the Museum, not the first. Yes, Night of the Museum 2, Battle of the Smithsonian. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, maybe that was effects plates, or I'm not quite sure, or a lot of the... Uh, I wasn't aware that Night of the Museum 2 was principally shot on, on, on Red One, but there you go. So John is no stranger to uh, Red, which is terrific, and uh, his work is just outstanding. Um, and Mark Webb to direct, who I'm not really aware of Mark Webb, but he has done 500 Days of Summer and a couple of other sort of TV, TV projects. So I think that's great. You can go from 500 Days of Summer to, uh, to shooting Spider-Man 4 in Sensational. There's hope for us all. Um, and the other thing that uh, happened between the time we recorded last week's show and the time that last week's show went to air is that uh, the Red Head Office clarified... Um, what was going on with the HDRX over the Epic M's. Now, when we were talking, if you listen to that show, you'll hear me saying that, uh, you know, if HDRX was included in the Epic M's, well, that's, you know, a big deal. And, and the point we were making then, was at the point we were recording that, is that uh, it was unknown. And I was saying, well, without HDRX, you're basically spending a lot of money for form factor form and production. Factor. Mm. Uh, ease of use and and you pointed out I think Jason quite rightly that that's a big factor when it comes to shooting stereo as is the case with these two films Um, but I was challenging you back that really did it make any difference on a commercial that you shot well literally about eight hours after we recorded that uh, Red announced that HDRX would in fact be enabled in the Epic M's and a few people uh, sent us emails saying didn't you know that and the answer was no we didn't actually at the time that we recorded we do now thank you um, <laughs> no but we so, thoroughly rely on the Brains Trust to uh, to do that for me we really appreciate it and obviously people who are listening and even anonymous Twitterites you out there who pop up and uh, fill us fill in the blanks or correct us we love it please do never stop uh, yes so uh, Epic M's uh, on launch and obviously also the tattoos that are out there now hdrx is enabled um but i think some of the features that aren't at the moment but will be obviously upgraded is just a firmware to uh, get these things switched on is audio there's no audio recording on the camera bodies alone at the moment uh and playback you can't actually play back from the camera at the moment so you obviously have to tether and then play back from video village uh, and there's various other lower resolutions, uh, but obviously 5, 5K, the most important thing is enabled, and HDRX. So um, for Epic M's and obviously for those tattoos, once they've uh, finished their duties, they'll all be um, up to speed with the production Epics when, when they all uh, start rolling out. Yeah, another thing that was interesting is the uh, we suddenly saw in the store the SSD modules. Yes, indeed. And obviously this is uh, of extreme interest to uh, people who uh, are having issues with their existing Red One and uh, um, 
uh, with potentially failing uh, red drives, not just the media inside the drives, but there's obviously a lot of you know, a lot of people have had issues with the firewire boards inside them and just the limo connectors and all that sort of stuff. These things are obviously built like a brick shit house, but these things have been, you know, by now a lot of these existing red drives are really starting to show their age. They've been, you know, up and down mountains and, and you know, thrown around and back of trucks for two, three years now. So you can now buy a, uh, from the Red Store, you can order a the SSD module for Red One is now out, 1500 bucks, and 128 gig, only 128 gig uh, SSD modules uh, at the moment, uh, SSD uh, media um, for 1800 bucks, which is, you know, expensive, I guess, but it's 128 gigs, I guess. Um, what are the drives at the moment? 250? Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, it's a little less than what we're used to, but I guess soon we're going to be able to do a little bit more with that media, I suppose, when we get sort of different red codes. Or am I speaking at my butt, just for a change? No, I mean, the the different red codes will, of course, be able to be recorded to the SSD drives because the SSD drives are the primary recording device on the um, on the EPICs. So, mm. you're not speaking out of anyone's um, orifices? No, I just was questioning the fact that the, obviously 128 gigs is now what you can buy versus oh, I'm red, sorry. red drives, which I guess are 250, aren't they? Yes. Yes. So I'm just looking up things and I can't see it. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously, um, no word on if anyone's actually received any of these. Uh, you can certainly order them, whether they're actually physically uh, winging their way to anybody. If you've received, put your order in and receive one of these, please let us know. Love to update people for the next episode. That'll be good to know if they're actually in the wild. Because, uh, as I say, people are uh, really screaming for these things. And obviously, it's just terrific now to be able to shoot longer runs uh, if you're trying to, um, you're trying to avoid if you've got you know high vibration setups or steady cam or helicopter mounts where you're trying to uh, you know you can't really rely on the red drives to be able to have longer runs than a 16 gig or 32 gig uh, a 16 gig cf card is going to let you do so it'd be great to get these things out there uh, but it's a pity that people who have bought red drives some of them i, I believe are having issues getting these repaired um on a side note if you have a dead red drive please uh, email me at uh, red at fxguide.com. I'm just having, uh, just need to have a chat. If you've got a dead uh, red drive that you can't resurrect and or red can't fix, let us know. I just need to have a chat. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, it's very cryptic. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, Yes, okay. Um, What else? Uh, Moving on from uh, red news. Um, This is a 5D thing. The Magic Lantern... um, Firmware's been updated by Trammell Hudson. Now, I've sort of have avoided this up until now, and I thought I'd sort of try it this time around. For any more people who don't really know, Trammell Hudson's been working on sort of um, uh, non-official hacking the firmware for a 5D Mark II to be able to, you know, switch on a lot of the things people have been asking for, things like histograms while you've been recording, extra markings in the viewfinder, audio level meters while you record. Uh, and and things like that, and obviously he's achieved that uh, in the past, uh, and and he also achieved obviously uh, manual audio recordings before Canon switched this stuff on. He's now in his latest build, uh, toiling and sort of toying with extra and higher bit rates, uh, getting really? up to about sixty six megabits a second, and I think 
bursts of 74, really? 74 megabits. I think it's up from, what are we talking I think it's about 48 or 47 yeah. or so megabits a second. I think you can, you can get it stable up to um, 66 megabits a second now. I've not... Um, uh, I've not tested it. I thought, bugger it. Uh, this week I said, I'll try it. I'll, I'll get the firmware. I'll download it. But, man, it is just the most... It's it, it's not for me. Some other geek can give it a go because I could not. It's just too complicated. <laughs> download this patch and put it on here. And I tried to upload it and I just couldn't. I just kind of... Basically just... It, it quite easily fell into the too hard basket. So, if you have actually tried this and a few people on Twitter when I mentioned I'd try it were all saying, oh, cool, let us know how it goes. So, clearly, no, <laughs> clearly nobody else has actually uh, given it a spin either. But if you've actually tried it, if you've uh, given it a go, let us know because I'd love to see if it's worth doing. Because there's a few other things, particularly like this 4.3 safe markings, if you're wanting to shoot uh, 16.9 all the time and, and you know want to have um, markings to uh, um, you know shoot for 4.3 safe, um, it would be great. There's a few little things like that, particularly obviously the audio level meters. You know, at the moment, you have to set and forget. You have to set that level meter, and then when you leave the menu, you have no idea whether you're peaking or whatever. And obviously with histograms as well, you can check the histogram before you roll. As soon as you roll, that they disappear from your screen. So, um, yeah, let us know if you have actually been geeky enough to try it and get it working. And let us also let us know if you actually have any... Uh, success with these uh, higher bit rates you don't have to actually test it just send us a clip shoot us something and we'll have a look at it that'd be great <laughs> you'll well, like a look at it i'll look at it yeah <laughs> hey um so uh, just also you've been doing uh, f3 stuff and you've been giving lectures and stuff uh discussing your film that you made and and uh, experiences with using it and there was yeah, some interesting stuff posted on the noise floor on that and I, I thought this was really interesting um yeah which know, is something that we'd actually obviously when we had a, a chance to play with the footage and we tested it and overexposed it and underexposed it a bit it was quite interesting we it was quite hard to i mean there is noise there it, it's no doubt but it, it is pretty minimal and we talked about last time i think with the the fact that the um it's pretty impressive what this codec does but i think alistair chapman had something on xd cam user he did a little posted a little thing about you know where are these noise levels and he actually did some uh, tests with uh 09 and 18 db and compared the clips and he also has uh, posted um some uh, mpegs as well so it's about a 65 megabit download but i've put the i will put the links uh in the show notes to it, but also on uh, XDCAM user, you'll be able to find a post called um, PMWF3, Where's the Noise? Uh, so thank you to Alistair Chapman for doing that. I mean, what, what's interesting is that he literally had to blow up this image by about 200% to um, literally see the difference um, in in the noise levels. As, as, as we've both seen with the footage, it's pretty impressive down that end and, and how also, as you found out, Mike, how much you can actually underexpose the image and still bring it back. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, totally. I mean, this um, obviously. I mean, obviously, compared to red, it's it, it's not you know it's incomparable because you know red red is a completely different beast. But um, mainly, obviously, comparison to DSLRs, the five Ds, what we've what we've noticed, and anyone who's actually ever tried to lift um, a slightly underexposed five D shot will just know that's a world of hurt, and you don't get very far at all before you start to see some uh, quite horrid stuff. But um, I, I think you. Um, in your tests at FX uh, PhD, you had maybe was it five stops you could lift it? Yeah, I mean there's there is a remarkable uh, noise floor on this camera. It is um, it is it is better than we expected. I mean, just point blank. Mm. Um, 
and uh, yes, we we found we had better results in in uh, sort of going in because if we overexposed, we couldn't pull it back very easily at all. Yeah, so underexposing kind of worked a bit better yes, for us. Yes, you cannot go very far that way. Um, and and that's fair enough. I mean, I you know each camera is what it is. Um, but yeah, no, I uh, I definitely feel like. Sony's done some clever stuff there and it's paying dividends. I mean, it really is. It's just paying huge dividends. This camera is performing better than it should given the, if you read the specs, which I think is mm. the point we keep coming back to. Yeah. Um, and that was even just the stuff that we shot on the SYS card. So eventually, obviously, once this stuff's, you know, switch on the four by the 444 and enable the whole um, S-Log um, setup, it's going to be um, interesting again. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, links in the show notes to that, and thanks to Alistair Chapman for, for doing those tests and posting them up. Yep. Excellent. Absolutely. So um, uh, something else I wanted to mention that uh, I, I look, you know, I guess we're, we're moving out of news now, but I just wanted to uh, discuss it because I thought it was just so phenomenally interesting. Before we get into the Red Center, sorry, the, uh, the Red Room, um, we have a a clip mm. we really want to put your attention to. This is um, a NASA clip. Now, this was actually originally designed for a DVD or made for a DVD. Um, and there's a clip on YouTube, which is about 45 minutes long. And um, I just really can't recommend this enough to people that listen to Red Center because this is exactly the kind of stuff that uh, I know you guys would like a lot. Um, what's happening is that uh, the guys who are on the photography team of the space shuttle have gone through and compiled a bunch of stuff that is effectively um, NASA launch footage, but with an access on the photography of that launching. So to give you an example, and, and uh, Jace, I know you've seen this, it's just phenomenal footage, oh. just unbelievable. They, there's like 125 cameras that film a classic normal shuttle launch. Now, when the public is watching those, you obviously want to stay with the, um, the shuttle pretty much as you would expect. Here, though, when they've compiled it, they've actually held the shots a lot longer after the shuttle's kind of lost frame, uh, left frame for some, uh, you know, sort of sensible mm -hmm. amount of time to show you what sort of happens after the shuttle has exited frame. But while that's going on, there's a narration going on explaining how they're doing things. So, for example, they'll be talking about a, a particular, what's called an e-camera or echo camera of the sets, and they'll be discussing yeah. the auto aperture that they've got on that, that this particular shot was like, say, 16 mil or... In some cases, it's 35. In some cases, it's HD. They'll be like, this shot here is like a 105mm lens. Uh, we were going at 180 frames a second, so we had to go through 630 feet of film per second. And then they'll discuss the iRig time code, which is a special time code kind of burning that they were doing. Um, and up the end of the clip, if you can hang with it, because this is obviously kind of super geeky. Um, I mean, it is. It's just sort of NASA camera porn, which is right it up is our alley. camera porn in the, of the highest order. But up the end, they get into the, the long stuff, the long lens stuff. And I was just phenomenally interested to hear about this. Um, there's a camera that they show footage from, which was a uh, Long Echo 225. And uh, some of this stuff is shot from places like Apollo Beach, which is 20 miles from the actual pad. And these are 150-inch long lenses that weigh 250 pounds and have an effective focal length of 4,000 millimeters. So it's a 4,000 millimeter lens. And somebody is manually following the shuttle in the sky using a trackball. Now, the video doesn't show you that, that gear. It just discusses that while you're looking at the shot and explains how they were done and the ISO or the 
you know, exposures or whatever they were doing at the time. But a terrific insight into the cinematography of, of documenting that stuff from a team that clearly knows what the heck they're talking about. I think it's just a really, really interesting piece. Uh, it is riveting. And as I say with the com- commentary, I think it's... Um I can only presume this is one of the commentary tracks off this potential DVD if it becomes so. It'd be rather niche if it does come out, but uh, if in the meantime we've we've got this footage, it's just it is sensational, as you say. Just the temptation is to cut this stuff after the camera rolls, but you know it's really really intriguing. Um, obviously, a lot of this stuff, and later towards the end of the shuttle mission, they had more and more cameras going on to be able to just double check that you know there was no foam impacts on the on the on the heat tiles. Uh, so it became more and more critical to have more and more cameras as as the shuttle program um, progressed. And I think pretty much we've just seen the last final launch. I think what the whole reason for this sort of you know this commemorative. Um, for this video and or whatever the final project will be i think it's obviously due to the fact that you know essentially the shuttle program is winding up and i think we've literally just seen the last the last launch and all of this footage is just around the first eight and a half minutes of a shuttle launch and um i've got to say there are things in there that i've often wondered about there are some uh, four bolts that are about like 100 pounds each that hold the shuttle engines down when they're first igniting and they have a camera on each of these of course to make sure that they um release and the way they release is that it's an explosive bolt then so you can actually step frame through and see the flash when mm. the explosive bolts uh, explode to release the shuttle and this is the kind of um, interesting detail that I think um, of course a broader audience is not so interested in but, but for us it's just fascinating now obviously this program aims to cover digital cinematography and this is yes, a lot of this not. traditional film mm. but um, I still think that anyone interested in uh, serious photography this is um, as in documentary cinematography, this is a a must-watch. And particularly because a lot of the time they're dealing with frame rates, which up until, you know, fairly recently were only achievable on film. And now, obviously, we're starting to, you know, well and truly go and rent tomorrow a camera that does a lot of these frame rates. So... It's it's an interesting from that point of view, at least from a reference of, uh, of, of really slow frame rates and what they can achieve. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really is. Oh, no, um, it is it is outstanding. So if this comes out on DVD or a Blu-ray or something, it'll be quite awesome. So that's uh, on YouTube, Ascent, Commemorating Shuttle. And, uh, yeah, you can probably, sh- uh, you can probably uh, obviously enter that into the search at YouTube or, again, we'll have the link to it on the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you that, uh, and we say this for a ton of time, but on the FX Guide feed, in iTunes, also obviously at the site, you can click on a PDF download. That's a, a PDF download that's sort of like uh, I don't know, a five, six-page um, kind of nicely laid out thing that will give you the links to the things we've discussed, uh, actual quotes if we're referring to some um, comment that someone's made, and, of course, photos if we have them. So, for example, the 0DB, 9DB, and 18DB um, XD cam user stuff, there's a link to that, the photos that we've been discussing, and, of course, um, things like this YouTube video. Um, so yeah, so I just I love when people send us stuff like that as well. So if you are yeah. you know coming across these sorts of uh, professional things, we don't we don't really need cats dancing on pianos, but uh, we we don't really get that either. Um, please yeah. please uh, send it through because we do absolutely uh, enjoy them. Please. Um, is it time to hit to the red room? I think it is. To get actually. to our interview. Um, so look. Uh, Basically, in the Red Room this week, we have Andrew's, Andrew, Angus Bickerton, um, who, interestingly, Jace, was a VFX supervisor on um, Red Dwarf Series 2, which he reminded me of when we were talking. Oh, um, okay. Yes. 
But uh, wow. he is the VFX supervisor from Narnia. So I, of course, was speaking to him at great length about the film Narnia. But at the beginning, I asked him about the process of determining what cameras, because we were discussing uh, quite, quite respectfully, but bluntly, about shutter crimes and the idea of 360-degree use, and yes. not only that, but why they selected the camera that they did. Um, and they did an extensive shootout at, at that time of every camera. So we're talking F-35s, F-23s, Reds, uh, everything. And so he discusses that. He also discusses, interestingly, talking with a DOP who I would describe as being a really, really great lighting DOP, but less interested in the technical stuff, although he obviously is very, very capable. And so there were some really interesting technical discussions there between obviously a supervisor that knew a lot about cinematography and uh, a cinematographer that knew an enormous amount about lighting. And, and he goes into that whole discussion. Now, it is quite a lengthy um, uh, interview. In fact, it turned into about sorry, a couple of hours. So we're going to edit that down. As I say, we'll put part one here in Red Centre. This is the stuff to do with cameras, a bit to do with stereo, etc. If you want to just hear about the VFX stuff, because you might be like, well, we're talking VFX supervisor, we don't get into the VFX at all, that will be over separately at uh, FX Guide in like a part two, which is just focused on um, how they did the various characters, um, how they did the various visual effects shots in the sequence, and also, to a certain extent, the dimensionalisation, which we're you know, separately following up on. I don't know if you've seen this Narnia film. Have you seen it, Jose? No. no. I, I've seen I, it. The, and... the shutter crime in the trailer is enough for me to, <laughs> well, <laughs> to anyway, put me off. Have you seen it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, and and have, what was interesting about it is that there was a lot of criticism of Prime Focus's work on Clash of the Titans when they first dimensionalised that. And I have to say, I was watching this film reluctantly in 3D because I knew it had been dimensionalised and I was thinking to myself, yeah, didn't like Clash, I'm going to hate this, but, you know, I was taking uh, family along. Anyway, I was really, really pleasantly surprised at how far the art had been advanced and how much better... Uh, the dimensionalization was in this film than any I've ever seen before. Uh, this was also done by Prime Focus, and we'll be separately covering that over at FX Guide. But it's um, look, obviously, it's a it's a Narnia film, it's a kids film. It's not up there with a say a Harry Potter, but it is, I believe, a, a good film. It's a fun film for kids, and it's been technically very very well handled in terms of dimensionalization. Mm. Um, but you know, it was all shot digitally, and it was all shot here in Queensland in. Um, a little bit in New Zealand, but mainly here in Queensland uh, uh, on the F-23. So let's cross now to Angus Bickerton in the Red Room. So, Angus, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Absolutely. Um, so, where did you first get involved in the film? Uh, I was approached by Sean Santiago from Walden Media and, and met up with Michael Apted, the director, then. And that was that was that was a, only a short time before shooting really started. I think that gave was about two months before shooting had started. But because the film had been caught up in all sorts of problems, um, it had actually been sort of rumbling along for about two years. It, it had always been intended that um, it would follow almost back to back with Prince Caspian. And Michael Apted was always intended to be the director, and he was literally waiting in the wings as they were shooting Prince Caspian. He was one of the producers on Prince Caspian. And then Prince Caspian uh, did comparatively 
Badly. It's kind of, it always sounds funny, this, because uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was such a runaway success. It made something like, I, I don't know the figures exactly, but it was something like $850 million. And flushed with that success, they dived into Caspian and with a huge budget. And it's the thinnest, actually, if, when you look, if you have, if you have your, your box set, it's the thinnest of the books. And um, it's also just all fighting, in actual fact. It's all, in fact, when I first was considering the film Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I showed the previous two films to my daughter, and she loved Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And she didn't like Caspian because she just said it was all fighting. Um, but, and and uh, sure enough, um, sort of riding on the coattails of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they thought they had a big success with Caspian. But it only made $420 million, <clears throat> which was therefore considered to be not as successful. And Which is pretty ironic, because if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong here, but apart from a Pixar film in the same year, it was one of the most successful Disney films. It's just that yeah. anything that came after, you know, a mega hit doesn't look, <laughs> doesn't look know, successful. Know. Uh, you know, the, the, the combined, you know, returns for the two films, pretty good, I would have thought. I think they, they, they spent quite a bit on Caspian. And all, it, this sort of led to, um, th- th- combined with a sort of a number of other things, this led to, uh, a, I believe, uh, Disney sort of backing out of being co-producers with Walden Media. So suddenly um, they had to, Walden Media and Michael Apted, still sort of at the helm, had to shop around for a co-producer, which ultimately ended up being Fox 2000, 20th Century Fox. So what happened is in the mean, during all that time, is uh, well, there'd been a, a really extensive previs on the previous two films. Andrew Adamson, the, the director of the previous two films, and who ultimately became one of the sort of executive producers on, on this film, because of obviously his background, um, working at DreamWorks, um, he, he loved previs, and he had a great team, uh, led by, uh, I think his name is Rupin Suwana, who I met very rarely, and another fellow called Mike Makara. And it, during that sort of, sort of long hiatus, they actually did a lot of previs, just ticking over previs. Um, so when I came on board with only a kind of couple of months left to go, a couple of major, se- major sequences had been sort of quite heavily prevised by uh, Mike Makara. Mike Bacara is one of the hidden gems of these films. He's been on all three films, and he's been on them pretty much from the beginning, at least until the end of, you know, from the beginning of pre-production, at least until the end of production. Um, Because, you know, he does amazing previous uh, using uh, his own particular setup, but in Maya. Um, It's very dynamic stuff, um, and... uh, he contributes a lot. And I think he, he really worked a lot with Andrew Adamson. He ticked over with, you know, sort of constantly doing little things for Michael Apted during that sort of hiatus. And uh, he stayed on board when we ultimately, you know, went to Queensland, to, to Brisbane, to the Warner Roadshow Studios. Mike Makara was there with us as well throughout the entire production. Still, still doing previous. Now, didn't the third floor get involved as well in previous? I never saw saw anything with their name on it. Right. Um, I only ever saw stuff that had come out of uh, the sort of in-house previs team led by Rupin. So when I'd been a, a sort of a key 
individual in the previous two films. He'd sort of, I think he was hoping to direct a film of his own, so he wasn't really there, and it was really Mike Makara. Right. And and the film was shot digitally on the F-23. Did that yeah. play into on-set previs comping? Because obviously you've got digital acquisition, you can... Um, most mm, it's a, well actually it's interesting um well first of all that was one of the things that appealed to me when i again when i was approached by sean santiago and, and sean santiago who was the visual effects executive at walden media along with doug jones had done a lot of in, and a gentleman called jonas Taylor had done a lot of investigative work into the optimum digital workflow because they thought that they if they invested in this this would become the production model for future Walden films. Um, so they had done a lot of research. You know, they 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 looked at the workflow on the Fincher films. You know, obviously he primarily started out on the Viper, um, but he used I think he used the F twenty three a little bit on some scenes. Uh, so the hospital scenes, I believe, in uh, Benjamin Button. Um, they. They looked into all sorts of different films and, and looked for the optimum workflow. Uh, the choice of camera came down to Dante Spinotti, who's the DOP, who, who in his, I don't know, Dante's just a fabulous character and he's in his late 60s and yet totally, you know, is no, no Luddite at all, totally embraces uh, digital cinematography, having, you know, spent his entire, most of his career working in film, I guess, he it is mainly working with Michael Mann that has led to him sort of converting to digital. Um, and uh, Michael Mann just completely believes this is the new medium. You know, this is, get used to it, this is it, this is the way it's going to be. This is digital film, this isn't film, this is digital film. Um, going into the production, so that, that was one of the reasons why Dante was was obviously approached as the DOP. That and Michael Apted and uh, Dante had history together. Um, so, but he, you know, he was obviously comfortable with digital cinematography. Um, he he favoured the F twenty three. Now, coming into there's a number of things, sort of interesting things to me. Anyway, I I thought were interesting. Uh, I really, I, I have to be absolutely honest. I wasn't very keen on the look of the imagery I was seeing from a film called Public Enemies which had been directed by Michael Mann and with the cinematography by Dante Spinotti, which was now, the, the I'm, Johnny I'm with you there. I'm with you there, but was that not the 360-degree shutter? Well, yeah, I think there's a number of factors that contribute to the video look. Um, gain, um, which obviously, uh, if, as you g- crank up the gain, you crank up the yeah. grain. <laughs> plus, gra- plus gain equals plus grain. And yes, the 360-degree shutter. And I think we were all aware of this. And, um, and I know certainly that um, the folks at Walden Media were very, very keen not to repeat the look and the style of, of Public Enemies, where you know, I think even people who didn't have technical know-how uh, were commenting that the visual style of it was at odds with you know, the 30s period movie. And I, uh, it had all the classic artifacts of digital cinematography that you, you hope to not have. It seemed to have clipped highlights. It seemed to have um, uh, noise. And, it, and it, you know, it's tonal range smacked of video. Yeah, and then possibly 
what I personally hate is, I think, is the sort of smeariness yeah. of 360-degree shutter. It's around this time that we, uh, <laughs> we all nicknamed it Shutter Crimes. And, um, <laughs> but I should yeah. point out that as much as there's a strong community, which sounds like you're a member of, that really hates the 360-degree shutter, in, in fairness to the people involved, to this day there are still people like Dean Semler and, and other very notable DOPs that believe that it's valid to go off a 180-degree shutter, though, well, as you say, I, it's, it's... Yeah, I mean, I would, I, had, um, I would have long conversations with Dante, and I have to say, you know, overall, I mean, genuinely, absolutely genuinely, I, I love Dante. I think he's truly a great DOP. He's one of those people where his qualities are in himself. You know, it's not... He has, obviously, a fabulous eye, and and... It's when you see his cinematography, you're seeing Dante Spinotti. But that's the thing, you know. You realise it's a, it's the character that's coming through. But here's the thing: Dante doesn't necessarily deliberate over the technicali- technicalities like we might, and he just doesn't see a problem with 360 degree shutter. So, are you Up saying that he's one of the what I'd call the lighting DOPs that isn't really fussed with the technical? Yes. So, so how did you shift him? Because obviously this film doesn't have the shutter crimes, doesn't have the video look. It looks very cinematic, very filmic. Well, again, but- yeah, credit, credit. I think, to, uh, you know, again, I go back to it. I really genuinely believe that, uh, you know, uh, Jonas Thaler and Sean Santiago at Walden Media did their, did their not just due diligence, but uh, over-diligence in checking out all the systems and investigating. Um, I then took the opportunity, because it's first digital film, to... Um, we cadged and borrowed every form of digital camera we could and did a test um, in, just before I left for Brisbane. Uh, we got stage at Twickenham and um, we got the red, the old red, red one, not the MX, the F23, the F35, the Genesis, the Viper, the Arri D21 it was then. Um, we got the Silicon Imaging 2K we got uh, the um, the um, the Phantom as well, and we got an Arri four three five, and we shot um, two hundred AS in five hundred AS. I wanted to do comparative tests. I wanted to learn the differences between the cameras. So what we shot was we shot uh, resolution charts, we shot uh, color charts, we shot. I made up um, uh, it's a thing. For me, that um, no grayscale chart has enough front lit, has enough range in it. So using neutral density filters, we made up a 15-stop backlit grayscale. Uh, designed to you know, really test the range of the film or the digital camera. And then we shot blue and green screen uh, with, um, you know... Uh, action, moving action and camera movement as well. And we shot it on all of the cameras. So all of the cameras that were, you know, all the digital cameras that were 35mm sized in their chip, we put exactly the same lens on those cameras as we had on the ARRI 435 film camera. And then, of course, um, the two-thirds of an inch cameras, such as the F23 or, well, I think, truthfully, the SI2K has a kind of a somewhere in between 
And um, I think the Phantom, I'm not sure if the Phantom is a, I don't think it's, you know, the Phantom is 35 mil size, isn't it? Yes. But, you know, where, where basically if the chip was smaller than the 35 mil size gate, we found we had to go with, obviously, with a DigiPrime equivalent. But essentially, we, you know, it was a locked off camera position so that we'd shoot exactly the same grids and matching either using the same lens or a matching focal length on two-thirds inch chips. And the idea being that I could check resolution, I could check tonal range, color rendition, and I could check for motion blur and obviously motion blur issues, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, one, I mean, the stark thing, what first thing that hit me was uh, as a lover of film, you know, because I, got, I, I started out, you know, shooting film really, um, I was shocked at how grainy and noisy even 200 ASA film was <laughs> versus a digital image. It, it, is a, it is a kind of remarkable thing how much you remember it being cleaner than it can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you just, um, you're just thinking, I, I, I thought 200 ASA was going to wipe the floor with the digital imagery. And obviously film does in its capacity to be able to accommodate um, quite a large tonal range. In fact, it exceeds still any of the digital cameras in terms of tonal range, but it is really noisy uh, by comparison. Now, there is noise in the digital cameras as well, and interestingly, it's just as heavy. It's heavier in the blue channel, better in the green, a little noisier than the green in the red channel, just as it is with film. Um, from those tests, remarkably... Um, you know, because obviously I was testing for rolling shutter artifacts and things like that. Uh, and I was also getting to grips in my own head with the different digital approaches to image capture. Um, obviously, Bayer pattern cameras uh, versus um, the sort of, I think the, the F35 and the Genesis and the Viper are parallel lines. They go red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue. So they're triple resolution in the vertical. Um you know, and, and, and the truth was, um, if I non-technically split-screened imagery from all these different cameras, they all pretty much achieved the same result at 1920 by 1080, but via different methods. You know, and and in, in, incidentally, I would argue that the much maligned red camera, which I completely concede, you know, all the technical arguments about it. Uh, I, I hear all those arguments about it. Uh, stands up extremely well against the uh, obviously the the cameras from larger organisations. Though that camera that you're referring to now in that test was still the that original was the M chip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that Not wasn't the M chip. That was the the old Not red the one, the two K one K one K, if you like to call it that. You know the um, um, yep with its JPEG two thousand compression and its. Uh, uh, you know what? You know if if you look at the different channels, you can see that those compression artifacts on the blue channel, for instance, in the red camera. But you know you run it through their software and output it as DPX frames, and you know it, uh, you can get a remarkably good key, better off green screen than blue screen, and um, you get amazing results. Uh, I saw recently Social Network uh, by Fincher, and I'm a big fan of Fincher's particularly because of the way his channel... I mean, I, I genuinely thought Zodiac was amazing in the cinema, and I saw it both on a film print and digitally. No, the thing with Zodiac, just to jump in there, the thing about Zodiac is while it was on the Viper, 
there was an yeah. extensive noise reduction cleanup process done uh, by Larry Vibe, Yeah, which I yeah, think no. gets over-missed sometimes in just – because I, yeah, I, I agree. I think I agree. it looked really, like, really good. This is the interesting thing. I, I, I mean, one of the things I learned is that uh, first straight away I uh, metered all my um, exposures – Blue, green screen, charts, color charts. I did everything at 320 ASA. So, and that was pretty much, uh, we then, uh, we had a team in from a company called Digilab um, uh, who, who were helping me along, really, helping me find my way around digital technology. We recorded everything where we could onto codecs, uh, codex hard drives. Uh, the codecs at that time came in, uh, sort of looked like a, a, a half refrigerator. Yes. It's got two drives in it that take something like, I, I think it's about 500 gigs, and it records uncompressed. So, it, it, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm starting to get into lots of details here, but, you know, the D20, no, 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 we, we recorded raw and we debayered later rather than using the debay, debayered out. This is, this is all relevant because, of course, Codex would go on to be Narnia's uh, recording yeah. backbone. Yeah, with- I think they were intended. I, mean, I have to say, it wasn't me that uh, determined that. That was already in place, pretty much. Um, what what I did do was, I, I, Digilab are, I guess, one of a group of emerging companies these days who are digital imaging technicians, digital imaging consultants who are out there to basically handhold you through the new field of digital cinematography, and um, and I can't say enough about them actually um they were excellent they were really good they helped out phenomenally with the testing and they helped out with my learning and, and understanding of the process as well um you know so obviously we you know we didn't record to the codex from the red camera for that we recorded onto one of its onboard drives and i, I created my own dpx's you know we scanned the film incidentally it was scan- was scanned at cineside at 2k so it was obviously 2048 by 1556 but uh, you know it it didn't actually the resolution was finer on the digital cameras than on film it has to be said um 2k versus 1920 by, by 1080 and that that's another one of those fascinating things i think is that um you know, I, it, what was dawning and what was awakening in my head, and I, I and I still wouldn't rule out film, incidentally. I just, um, you know, I was learning, is uh, that, you know, in your head you're going twenty forty eight versus fifteen uh, by fifteen fifty six versus nineteen twenty by ten eighty. Now, obviously, when you crop twenty forty eight by fifteen fifty six, if you shot super one seven eight, you'd get twenty forty eight by something like about uh, I. I I think about 1100 something like that I'm not sure I can't remember what it is so you're marginally better resolution uh, than digital but what what you don't have of course is you don't have analog grain you have a fixed grain pattern in 1920 by 1080 you don't have any obviously the 435 is an excellent pin registered camera and mechanism that you know that um, you know you don't get that sort of random noise. So the apparent resolution at nineteen twenty by ten eighty looks sharper than film. It, it's um. It's well, because most people's perception of sharpness is just based solely on some concept of of resolution. But actually, it's resolution, but it's also contrast, isn't it? Which of course is uh, yeah, a, absolutely because yeah. because yeah. in lower or higher contrast will dramatically change your perception of sharpness. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I I, I wasn't. D- to be honest, I, I did do some slight uh, 
grade manipulation. Obviously, you you have to do with the Viper. Um, traditionally, you know, not, uh, notoriously, famously green in its original uh, data. But um, I just basically did base, you know, because there were grayscales, grayscales and color charts. I just did very very simple color matching, so that I was split screening the stuff and trying to gauge everything at the same contrast. And out of this testing, the F twenty three was not my choice of camera. Okay. <laughs> What 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 I slowly learned was, of course, that what happened was Sony entered into a deal with Panavision to develop the Genesis. Whilst they did that, and in the five, I think it's something like five years that they they developed the camera together, they promised not to build a competitive camera of their own. So what they came up with instead was the F23. You know, F35 stands for 35 mil size chip. Yeah. F23 is two thirds of an inch. And arguing that the the three chip F23 was a TV production camera designed for you know TV drama. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, people were using it, starting to use it. Really, it was starting to become. I think they were also. I, think I read somewhere online that they were, they were offering people F twenty threes. You know, you hand your Viper back in, they trash it, and and you could replace it with an F twenty three. I think. Um, I think the production would have liked us to use the F thirty five, because the F thirty five really was the genesis further developed. Um, well, the other thing about the F thirty five, and I don't think it was valid at the point you were doing the testing, but in cooperation with Codex can actually output 12-bit linear, not um, right, and actually yeah. record um, a higher linear um, output as a raw feed, which is to say sort of beyond what most of the other uh, cameras are sort of 10-bit linear or some are 12-bit linear. But Well, we recorded, let me think about this. I mean, so we recorded uh, raw um, onto the Codex, and then it was the Codex that obviously spat out the files at the end. Um, yes. Uh, as to, I'm trying to think. Sorry, about I mean, the, I mean, I, I got that wrong. I beg your pardon. It was. Four, I mean, it is normally 12 bit linear. The codex yeah. it can take it to 14 bit. Um, ah, right. I believe. Uh, well, it, that's the only. Oh, well, then I guess because the codex records raw. I guess it's up to the camera, whatever it spits out, really, isn't it? Yeah, because the the camera obviously in these scenarios where you're shooting raw is not converting it to a color space nor to any kind of uh, gamma or for that matter log. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. So there's the, the codex that spits out the files at the end. But, you know, I'm going to get lynched if I don't interrupt you and ask you, you said the F23 didn't win your test. Just for academic reasons, what did? Uh, no, no, I just, uh, well, first, I mean, part of me is going, uh, I, I was, the astonishing thing is that, obviously, you're achieving 1920 by 1080 resolution on, I was just trying to, I'm just trying to look, look it up on my, um, my desktop, actually, because I started to think about the focal lengths of the digi primes versus the 35 mil lenses, the lenses that would go on either 35 mil motion picture cameras or or cameras with 35 mil sized chips, and it started to occur to me that this the chip size wasn't two thirds of an inch, i.e., you know, two thirds of 25.4 millimeters, which would will work at about 16 mil. Effectively, it was actually, and I've got it on my desktop here, and I'm just trying to find it, actually, but it's something like 11 millimetres by 9.23 millimetres. 
Yes, the two-thirds inch is a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Which means it's smaller than 9.5mm film, the chip size. You know, the old 9.5mm film. Now, obviously, there are three chips. And so it's kind of astonishing that these digiprimes achieve the same resolution on chip sizes so tiny. Yeah, people... And this is the same thing that happened when the Primos uh, were being used on the initial uh, um, Sony cameras, the Star Wars Sony cameras, the um, F900s, and they went to yeah. the the uh, uh, digital Primos. And the digital Primos were aimed at a two-thirds inch sensor, but had yeah. to actually be about two and a half times the resolution because obviously you're trying to focus the same source picture, in your case, yeah. Narnia, down to yeah. a smaller target. And yeah. so, of course, you need to be more precise. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I, suddenly you're going, wait a minute, well, if we can a- a- achieve this resolution on, on, on chips this size, um, why don't we achieve that kind of line resolution on 35 mil size chips? Wow, think what you could get. <laughs> um, that's what, which is obviously where those digiprimes are amazing sets of optics. But it also started to make me think, wait a minute, so hang on, you're not only achieving this a phenomenal resolution on a very small chip size compared with 35mm ones, although, you know, I guess we have this going on all the time with our digital stills cameras, um, but the prism block in there that splits it so that it's going into red, green, blue, has the, the tolerances in there are just boggling, mind-boggling, you know, to, to, to line up the imagery. So I always had this suspicion in my head, that there must be some uh, f- post-processing of the imagery. To align the three channels? Yeah, to align the three channels and to sweeten the imagery, I guess. So therefore, possibly some noise reduction. And, uh, you know, so that even, even though all cameras, when we set them up, because I was working closely with Digilab, were all set to uh, you know, to zero settings, zero dp. We shot everything with 180 degree shutter incidentally when we did the tests. Um, you know, there were no. Uh, it was a, how to how to describe this. There were no there were no processes apparently going on in the camera. Now, were you outputting in uh, the S log format? Um, well, that's another thing. Yes, I mean, obviously, the camera does. Yes, it outputs S log format. Yes. Which is kind of like half traditional film log. And, and, and did you ever get your suspicions validated on the alignment of the uh, three images from the three CCDs? Um, well, one of the things that I detected in the tests, one of the reasons why the F23 wasn't my first choice, was it did uh, exhibit some fringing. And I couldn't tell whether that was down to the DigiPrime versus... Because obviously, if I was using the same prime lens on all the 35mm-sized image cameras, um, I was getting image fringing around the edges. So what we're basically talking about is we're talking about a chromatic aberration, which could happen from lens coatings. We've seen that in uh, early, go back 10 years, Canon lenses. Exactly. Um, Or it could be that that once you split the... uh, the beam into the three, because obviously, unlike some of the other cameras we've been discussing, which are CMOS chips, yeah. which grab onto a Bayer pattern, um, yes. this actually literally is splitting the image into three, and then it's recorded by effectively three um, uh, chips. Yeah. And three those, chips. that has the advantage of not having rolling shutter, but has yep. the disadvantage that, as you say, yet that could be, if they weren't absolutely 
mind-numbingly um, accurate, yes. uh, then they could be uh, perhaps yeah. another cause for the fringing, right? Yeah. So uh, for that reason, it wasn't my personal selection. Um, Dante, meanwhile, over, over in LA, had been doing um, he'd been doing tests of his own, and he'd he'd really narrowed it down to F thirty five versus S twenty three, and he was strongly biased to the F twenty three going into the tests. I think the studio Walden, you know, through their investigations, had sort of come up with already at that stage with their idea that they'd like to use the F thirty five, but. He, you know, he basically, I think he did uh, the more sort of traditional DP's tests. He did some studio-based lighting and he went out onto a beach and shot in extreme uh, contrast conditions. Um, And basically, you know, because uh, he won his case. He got the F-23 that he wanted. Um, I mean, in in those early early stages, fresh off doing things like public enemies, he was talking about using... um, he was pr- proposing using that as an action camera, you know, a handheld action camera. The Sony XL, not XL1, I'm trying to remember what it is, but it's, I mean, fortunately we didn't get to use it. We nixed it. Uh, but they'd used it apparently on public enemies. And it, now, it has to be said that, um, you know, obviously uh, Dante is a great character and, and, a, and a great artist. But because the Michael Mann, Michael Mann is such a, he's so in charge on his films. Apparently, his methodology is that you know he shoots, and what he sees there on the set on the monitors is he wants is what he wants in the final film, and he wants it. They they graded on the set, they set a look, and that was it. So they baked in to Rec Seven Hundred Nine imagery the grade, and that's why when they went to do the DI later on Public Enemies, there was no range. Basically, they they were equivalent of an eight bit linear image. They were grading with an eight bit linear image. Well, this is where, sorry, I'm finally getting around to your question, to, to answering your question, really. This is where, you know... Um, By the way, I looked it up. It was the Sony EX-1 you were referring to. It, yes, probably was the Sony EX-1. He was, uh, Dante was even proposing that as, you know, as a lightweight handheld camera. What we ultimately ended up using was the uh, Sony 950T as a, an action camera. Um, and that's a whole other discussion, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, because... That's a slightly older camera. I don't know if you know what it is, but it's it's a bit like the, oh, yeah. the 900 that was used, I think, on the Star Wars yep. on on Attack of the Clones. It, but in that, you can you can break off the sensor module from the recording unit, so effectively you end up with a very small camera that you can literally hold in the palm of your hand. And uh, you know, we were able to basically put a couple of parallel cables into that and record directly into the to the codex that is also a three chip two-thirds of an inch camera but it's nowhere near the quality of the f23 no no that was like the f900 then they went to the f750 i think and then back to the f950 and i think it was actually cameron that wanted them to break it in part so they could uh, yeah. use it better for stereo and that's when it uh, became the ni- became the 952 yeah basically. yeah yeah which is when it's you can break it out yeah which i yeah i'm guessing because i think i understand avatar was shot on f23 and or 950 cameras for the stereo rigs. Yes, of course. Now, their motivation, and we're going to need to um, yeah. get back to Narnia at some point, but their motivation, of course, was <laughs> to um, to be able to have a good depth of field because they wanted to be an immersive experience. And that was something that you were going to inherit because once you did the F23, you gained yeah. a lot of depth of field. But you, but you must answer me this question, mm-hmm. which camera did was the one you did prefer out of your testing, just for academic, historical reasons? 
Uh, well, actually, um, that's. I mean, you know, this is going to. I'm going to sound really strange, but I think I prefer the red camera. Okay. Now that's. Well, now, if I. No, no, if that's, that's me. That's me. I, I, I know. I mean, I could talk to some of the people in Soho right now. You know, if I went to a, a facility in Soho and said, it's going to be shot on the red, you'll see them roll their eyes, their shoulders slump, you know, and they'll groan. Yeah, not the red. But I actually thought, I'm just talking about the way, I'm, I'm talking about a first review on a screen. You just went, wow, it's clean, it's sharp, it looks great. It obviously, starting supposedly 4k it just looked really good i have to say um then technically i would have gone i would have probably i thought the the um, the f35 um, there's a sort of a the ergonomically the f35 was actually a work in progress it had all sorts of problems like you couldn't maneuver the eyepiece properly um technically i favored the array for sheer ease of use and quick grab of imagery and look on the screen I just got to <laughs> the red's good. It's good. Well, now it is a, it is an academic discussion because obviously all the cameras <coughs> have moved on since then, and there's mm. Alexa and there's uh, yep. MX and stuff. But I, I would like to pick on something you mentioned earlier about DigiLab codecs. Um, mm. because, can I just piece together the jigsaw puzzle? Because when you're on yeah. set, everything we've been discussing so far is that first test you did. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sorry. What yeah. was? That's right. There's Codex, which is obviously the recording mm. device that you did <coughs> yeah. use on Narnia. Um, Soho Net, which is the sister company of Codex, which provided mm. obviously the, the effectively, it's not the internet, but it's the dark fiber that links back from uh, Queensland to, to the, especially to the London houses. It all came from London, of course. Um, yeah. And part of Soho Net is Vessel, which yeah, is they, the, they, that was their big, prov- that, that was the big thing that they provided, yes. And how did that fit in with DigiLab? Because DigiLab was also on set, right? Well, no, sorry. I, 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 let me be clear about this. Um, uh, uh, for the tests, um, because I, it was an early days, so first time yep. for me, really, uh, that, uh, I met up with the DigiLab guys. It turns out that um, um, there's a genius at DigiLab called James, who actually worked for me as a trainee, um, as a lanky teenage trainee on Lost in Space years ago. And now... He's a genuine image color space genius, and he were, and he's the he's star there. Um, I'm trying to remember his surname because I, I should really give him credit. Um, anyway, so it, uh, he really really helped me see my way through all these different cameras. Taught, told me about different you know CMOS versus uh, CCD chip. Told me how they you know I learned slowly how they were working, um, how they all differently worked. So he really guided me through that. I then introduced Codex, uh, sorry, uh, DigiLab, because of all this help, to uh, Walden Media, and they went on to help us through post-production for some shooting in post-production back in the UK. But truthfully, for Brisbane, we shot F23, recorded uncompressed onto Codex and some Codex portable drives. That Codex then spat out... um, could then spit out the DPA. The, sorry, the, the files were then backed up to Vessel, yep. to LTO four tapes, and and to Vessel, which was provided by the SohoNet team. Uh, the Codex then spat out graded DNX thirty six quick times for the Avid, um, you know, with matching time code, obviously. And uh, the, the, now the grading thing was a separate thing. Uh, separately, uh, after a lot of exploration, what was introduced 
was uh, that we had, wherever we went, because we were sort of the test bed for this pipeline, I think we we were over, everyone agreed by the end of the production, we were pretty much, we overdid it a little bit. But basically, we had the cameras uh, cabled back to the codexes. Um, the imagery went into, we had a portable base light, Mac-based base light that was operated by a colorist called Greg Creaser, who sat in a black tent with Dante. Wherever we went, whether it was location or stage or what have you, there was an absolutely light, tight black tent with air conditioning, by the way, which was, it was very nice in there, no matter where you went. And in there, Dante sat and monitored. We usually only had two maxed to three cameras. Um, and he had iris control. He had aperture control. And he sat there with Greg and um, graded the images on monitors set for Rec 709. So Rec 709 was determined to be our sort of view lot um, because the other nice thing about this setup was that dailies were published to Walden Media's Walden Bay website so that literally within about a quarter of an hour of us shooting in Brisbane, executives back at Walden were watching the dailies. In LA, and, uh, but the, and the idea for the Rec Seven Hundred Nine view lot was that it was sort of like a print lot, and because at that stage, again, sorry, it's getting kind of convoluted here, but at that stage, it has to be noted, the F twenty three was chosen because Dante liked it. Because we, I was told categorically at the beginning of the film, we would not be three D, so we did not choose the F twenty three for any three D reasons. Um, so can I just jump in there because it just yeah. strikes me that this idea of sitting in this black air-conditioned tent, just <laughs> I'm just having flashbacks to Francis Ford Coppola, one from the heart with the uh, yeah. giant large silver trailer. W- yeah. Was it as you described that that Dante was primarily um, coordinating everything from the tent, or did he just occasionally go into the tent? No, no, he was he. he I would say spent seventy percent of his time in the tent uh, on walkie-talkie connection to the operators. Uh, and the and the first AD, and yeah, he'd be grading the imagery, and then that that grade would then be fed through to any onset monitors that Michael Apted or any of us were watching, and that grade was then stored as a CDL with the raw data on the codex. Now, just so, to be clear for those people that don't know, the CDL is the color decision list, which is yeah. the um, the idea of reduced grading set of instructions that you yes. can pass along as kind of like metadata. Um, which now, is, yeah, it's a great idea, but it's got issues. That's exactly are, what I was about to say, because yeah. this is a, a relatively limited palette that you can actually yeah. put into a CDL. So if you violate the CDL, you break the pipeline. And if you stick with the CDL, you can't do all the things you want to do kind of thing. Is that yeah. not the case? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 sorry to, but basically the idea was, yeah, we shoot raw, it would go into a uh, portable uh, base light. Greg Creaser would grade along with Dante. Dante would have iris control. Um, whatever grade they did was saved as a CDL, which is a 10-number expression, basically. It's slope offset power in red, green, and blue plus saturation, which is your 10th value. And that would get stored as a grade 
with the raw data. The codex would then spit out the DNX 36 QuickTimes with that CDL baked in, so it was pre-graded by Dante, and that's what went into the Avid for editorial. Um, but it was separately stored um, on, on, on the codex and was not at all baked into the raw data, obviously. The trouble um, is, though, on a, on a continuum where we had printer lights at one end, which obviously you can't even control such uh, contrast on, yeah. and at the other end you've got a full uh, new coder or a you know, base light doing regionalized, multi-layered um, color correction, yeah. a CDL sits pretty much in the middle. It is... It's yes. not an advanced. Well, yes. I mean, uh, well, no, this this could um, this could take up. I mean, there's a long conversation to be had here. But so the the intention was that effectively Dante did an onset grade, and therefore effectively it was first pass grade by Dante. But it is uh, just a sort of a best light because they, they're going to do a lot more work. I mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, one the. The, uh, it, what's interesting always is the whole what does happen on a production like this where you are in post-production for such a long time. We were 10 months post-production. You know, it, was a, it was a welcome 10 months because of the amount of work we had to do. Sounds crazy, I know, but you know, it was. And, um, but when you do that, it means that you, you look at those first-pass graded images in the Avid for 10 months and you get used to them. So, you know, the, 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 even though it was recognized that this was really just a first-pass sort of rough grade, uh, a lot of people comment on those first time round, and they get used to those images as well. Um, what uh, I, I like to say that people say that it's just a ballpark grade. The trouble is yeah. hitting a ball out of the park is actually then quite hard. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, we ultimately graded from scratch again in the new coder. We had a new coder DI setup. Now, here's the, here's the next thing is what we did was we, so we shot in Brisbane uh, and we shot with these CDL grades uh, attached to the data and then baked out in the DNX 36 QuickTimes that went into the Avid. We, we started editing over in, in Brisbane, then we moved back to London and we continued to edit there. But meanwhile, also as part of, uh, um, Walden's intention we set up our own DI suite a new coder based DI suite in right next to our cutting room so we were cutting on one floor and we had the DI set up downstairs um, uh, we had two suites set up and we actually a provision for three uh, because this was all based on the fact that um, on Prince Caspian um They'd spent so much time at what was then the frame store DI, it had cost them a fortune. So they decided that um, they were going to have build their own in this particular case. And they went with new coder. But, but even frame store doesn't run the frame store DI like that anymore, right? Well, uh, frame store DI is closed down now, in yeah. actual fact. In so... fact, what they did was they hired essentially the frame store team. Because that's uh, a good had... team. It was a good team, yes. Then I met those guys, they're nice uh, guys. Jan Hogeveld uh, as the producer. Uh, we had a fellow called Jerome, who was the color technician. Um, we had Adam Glassman was hired from um, uh, Ascent Media as our, color, as our prime grader. And we had, uh, as, his, as a secondary colorist, um, Adam Inglis, also ex-Frame Store as well. 
And um, so, yeah, we were in good hands there, basically. Uh, but really, what happened uh, was we had to uh, we re- we really used the CDLs as the starting point, and then Dante came back in post and regraded again in the new coder. So now, now yeah. Angus, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from the transcripts, my lord, where you said, and they promised me that it wasn't going to be in 3D. At what point between now and Dante grading again in, uh, mm. for a final grade, did somebody say, Angus, can I just take you aside for a second? I think we've decided to, um, yeah. to dimensionalize well, whilst, this. Whilst we were in early... We came back to London in December last year. And, and what happened, of course, was that uh, um, Clash of the Titans came out in... I think it was in April... Having, you know, notoriously been converted to 3D in some anywhere between five or eight weeks, depending on who you speak to, by Prime Focus. Um, and you know, it, but before that, you know, Avatar had been out, so that's why we were asking. You know, I remember asking, "Are you sure this isn't going to be 3D?" And they said, "No, absolutely, categorically not." Uh, Walden Media had done Journey to the Center of the Earth and had such difficulties on that. That they just didn't want to go go there at all, uh, but then you know as they were starting to do the conversion on Clash of the Titans, uh, we started to go. Mm, we started to hear mutterings, and then of course Clash of the Titans opened and did very well, better than probably it should have done because of the whole three D side. Um, <clears throat> and then you know in those, that first week when it did well, you know we started to sense something was going to happen. And within a couple of weeks, it was like, well, what did you think? Yeah, of course it's going to be 3D. Yeah. I mean, we've got to be 3D. Surely, surely, surely you understood that. So it was decided at that point, shortly after Clash of the Titans, to go 3D. That gave us um, April, May, June, July, August, September, five months to do our conversion, in theory, uh, rather than five weeks, I guess. Um, and what they what um, but what again 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 I got to give credit to um, Sean Santiago, Sean Santiago and Jonas Thaler. First thing they did was they got in um, a stereographer. They brought over from the states a gentleman called Ed Marsh, who they'd met when Cameron uh, Walden funded Cameron to do his IMAX movies diving on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mons- yeah, I think creatures and diving yep. into yeah. Now the truth was, those films were actually only partially shot in 3D. A lot of it was all faked or post-converted afterwards. So, Mr. Cameron is as guilty of post-conversion as anybody, truthfully. In fact, if you remember any of those IMAX movies, there are sh- there are cringing shots where he is sitting in the foreground in supposedly the bubble of a deep underwater submarine. And obviously he's shot on a stage against background footage that they shot, which is mono background footage, and they converted. So um, Ed, Ed Marsh, I think, um, had been a sort of a visual effects editor for Cameron. And with those, you know, with chops like that, he came on board, came onto our film and... Um, and he was a fantastic boom, actually. Um, he came with 
an experience about viewing 3D and an understanding of it that I'm, you know, I had to learn very, very quickly, and I would never have been able to do at all by myself. Um, um, he basically came on board. He straight away sat and watched the whole film, and then he and he would give notes to Michael Apted and to Rick Shane, the editor, and he would say, literally, you know, he 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 suggested a couple of places where we might extend a shot because it would help the view, you know, the 3D viewing process. That certain shots look better, you know, that would obviously give us the opportunity to do some interesting 3D. And he and in in one particular instance, which is the uh, when when we transition through the painting into the world of Narnia at the beginning of the film, we actually changed the design for three D. Thanks, Angus, for for chatting. That was fantastic. I know it was long, but it was just intense. Well done. Thank you. Um, I mean, so dimensionalization. Do we think this is? I mean, obviously, shooting 3D is, you know, a, a big pain. It's twice the data, a lot of work. Cameras are big and bulkier. You get a lot of, a lot of pains, a lot of post pain. Do you think dimensionalization is just going to get better and better, and eventually we'll just shoot everything 2D? Or, you know, obviously there's there's advantages to, you know, doing it for real and doing it in camera. But if but if dimensionalization gets better, maybe 3D on set may not be. So I've got to say, like, this is a dramatic difference in what we've seen before. So, yeah. that's a really good question. What's happening is it's a bit of a race. If there weren't, for example, epics coming out, and so we just had to face really, really big, bulky rigs, I'd probably say they're doomed because the dimensionalization is going to get so good over yeah. the next few years that mm. why would you bother? But if the cameras can get small enough so that the filmmakers aren't compromising too much on the portability, um, then... You know, if the rig could be side by side, for example, well, right away there, you're going to be, why not just shoot it 3D? Mm. Um, and that, of course, presumes that you want to shoot the film 3D and, and uh, not all films are good films to be 3D. And Lord only knows that there's been a lot of films that haven't been three-dimensionally shot or dimensionalized that are terrific, uh, even in the current batch. So I don't have any problem with um, with whether or not somebody... Uh, I don't think it's going to be like an, an us or them. I think it's a bit of a race at the moment to see whether the cameras get small enough fast enough or people mm. just get there faster. But I've got to say, it is a lot of work in post to dimensionalise. It's a lot of work on set to film with stereo cameras. But there isn't a free get-out-of-jail you know, card for, for, a, for stereo workflow. I think the other thing is if you've got a film like Narnia... Um, it really is easier because you already inherently have digital characters and green screen and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Alice in Wonderland is another great you know, case in point. If you wanted to dimensionalize a very fast-running but primarily non-VFX film, um, you, you don't have some of the advantages. I think in the – and we'll discuss this in the um, other thing, but in the final shot count, we're talking about 1,900 kind of edits in the film – about 1,400 um, VFX shots. Uh, 190 of the 1,900 shots, they just did fully stereo because they could. Um, they that, that they decided late late into principal photography to dimensionalize and become stereo. So they hadn't done the VFX work. So they said, okay, well, these shots are all virtually CG, CG water, CG creature, CG, etc. Let's just do those fully stereo. And so that's about 10% um, that were done that way. Prime did by far 
the majority of the shots. A couple of other companies that did some 911 work for Prime, but yeah, let's for all intents and purposes, it was Prime Focus that did uh, that work. Spread out between London, LA, and Mumbai, I believe. So obviously, we've, it hasn't been too long from dimensionalizing being not very good to being quite acceptable, uh, reasonably quite quick, but also it's quite hit and miss by the sound of it because uh, I think it was Harry Potter was at the last minute was uh, that decided to not push any further forward with uh, dimensionalizing that and just go 2D only. Look, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to turn this into a thing on, on stereo, but I will sure. just say this, Jace, that if you think that you know everything about dimensionalization from having seen some crappy stuff in Clash and Snickered, mm. um, you should have another look. And I also want to say this, that uh, we had a, talking to a studio overseas, they said that they were visiting um, major Hollywood studios, and they said, look, we're probably not going to dimensionalize a whole film we're going to probably shoot it but there will be some shots out of this that will mean it'd be dimensionalized and as part of your portfolio of things you need to be able to do you need to be able to dimensionalize so mm-hmm. uh let's say you did shoot uh, well you know let's take uh pirates pirates seems to be me to be shooting on a ridiculously large and cumbersome rig um but that's just me right <laughs> I'm yeah not, yeah well, I'm not well an expert, but ridiculous you're right con- considering what you want to achieve with that you know boats and water and sand and you know being quite quick and cranes and you know and water did i mean so i don't i absolutely do not know that, but i would imagine there could easily be a shot where you go you know when we put this in a situation where we can't get the rig in all right well we'll just dimensionalize that shot and so uh it could be reasonable in a fully stereo shot big professional film be it Spider-Man, Hobbit, or Transformers, that you just decide to have still some shots that are dimensionalized because it's just a, a better solution for whatever the particular problem is that you're trying to get around. Mm. And so being able to dimensionalize is something that people are going to have to do if they just want to be a serious player in visual yeah. effects. So, uh, you know, and I've got to tell you, it is really complicated to do it properly. I bet. And I think um, Prime is... You know, and the other thing is, I, I just hate it when people beat up on somebody on version 1.0 because, yeah, okay, I'm I'm uh, understanding some of the issues I saw them too in, in in Clash. But, you know, the first CG characters we did didn't look realistic, but we, you know, took steps forward. And now you've got things like Tron with, you know, completely believable CG characters. Yeah. So it is something that the industry tends to forget sometimes. We tend to get there in stages and, you know a stepping stone on that is always going to be something that you're going to find fault with. But if you keep on improving at the rate they are, oh, wow. But also, as you say, cameras catching up. Two epics in the 3D rig is just going to be mind-bendingly awesome when you're used to wielding two F-35s on a, on, a, on, a, on a rig. And that's the two F-35s is what they've got on Transformers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, which I was amazed partly because... Uh, it just amazes me with these intensive VFX intense shows that they're shooting on 1080p. Essentially, you're not you're shooting at lower res than your 2K final 2K, um, uh, you know, output scan, your final final print, final DI. So it just amazes me. I guess these days, I suppose most of the backgrounds are replaced and anyway with plates and, and you know you're never actually most of the time with with you know with huge robot uh, transforming fights you're not actually using too much of the actual image. But I guess there's a ton of interaction with the massive plates that they're shooting and like the stuff they they shot in Chicago with you know dropping cars into into the main city square and, and explosions. You're you're dropping you're inserting a lot of uh, serious cgi into these into these scenes i'm amazed that 
shooting 1080p is is perfectly fine to do that these days i think the f35 is a really really good camera obviously it has a much better size sensor but i don't know anyone that isn't incredibly interested in the epics um because of the smaller form factor yeah and everything multiplies as we've discussed with the advantage of say a 5d mark ii or a d7000 that you know you have a smaller camera then all of a sudden Everything that supports that camera is smaller, yeah. and it just multiplies, you know, right to how many unit people you need organizing catering because you've had to get such a large amount of stuff in because you've had to have such a large crane because you've had such a heavy rig. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and the lighter camera is going to stay in, you know, it's going to stay correctly converged. It's all going to stay lined up quicker. If you start putting a, if you put a, um, you know, two F-35s on a Russian arm, then put that on a Technocrane and start flying that around your set, stuff is going to get out of whack reasonably quickly and you're going to spend a lot of downtime adjusting, getting things back into, uh, you know, back into alignment. Um, as you know, Mike, as you know, well know, you know, you can be, uh, don't have to be very far out of alignment before you get some very, very um, unhealthy results. Yes. Now, there's some other stuff we couldn't fit in this week's show, Joe, so I just want to flag. Uh, we yep. have done some tests with the D7000. We're going to include it this week. We're running out of time because we've yep. both got to shoot off, but that's coming up. Um, there's some other interviews coming up. Uh, so yes. we're going to, quite a lot of stuff between now and Christmas, and then, of course, in the new year, and so we'll be keeping you abreast of those. I'm, as I said, in Korea this coming week, as you are in New Zealand shooting and working, so we will be um, hopefully getting one more show in before Christmas. Uh, but uh, we just want to thank everybody for their support, and there's an off chance we won't make it before uh, Christmas, if that is the case. And let me just take this opportunity to wish you all uh, a really safe and, uh, and happy holiday period. And for those of you that uh, are predisposed a very merry christmas for those of you that are in uh, countries that just have the holidays then have a really good holiday and a safe uh, period and of course a great new year happy festivus um, but we we as i said we hope to sneak in uh, one yeah. more show um in that couple of days before christmas Absolutely. though i'm shooting film when i return from korea <laughs> in a big uh, shoot we're doing so i'm going to be pretty busy myself but um, Excellent. I'm looking forward take to lots of photos of you with a film camera because you never I'm, really know when you're going to get that last shot of you leaning on the leaning on a film camera you well i'm going to do a bit of a leak and say we're doing a lot of really important workflow next term in fx phd and of course one of the workflows we want to do is film um, and so yeah. yes we're not this show is all about digital cinematography but of course in phd we have to cater to every uh, workflow and film is still a very valid workflow so it'll be fun to see what that is again, mm. having shot so, so many years with film. It'll be funny to be back on set and go, oh, that's the split. Really? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> oh, what are all those little marks on there? Oh, What's the... What, what, can we get rid of I, those? No. What? Can we switch those off? Oh, no. Can we get that on a big screen? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, what's happening? Why am I shooting? Oh, we've got to put more film in. Oh. oh. Yeah. That was quick. Anyway, so, uh, yes. So, again, look, we really do appreciate all your support. Um, and I've said it a couple of times Absolutely. this year, but... Red Center has really blossomed this year, and we want to thank you guys for, for your support and our new sponsors, uh, the Foundry, for uh, coming on board and uh, and supporting us. Jace, thank you so much. Absolutely. Enjoy your time thank in New you. Zealand. Same here. Thank you. I must go pack. Thank you, guys, and we'll talk soon. See ya. This Red Center podcast was brought to you by Storm, a brand-new red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. To find out more, check out thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for more details.
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.